You're listening to Global Questions by YDS, an apolitical podcast that, as the name suggests, asks the big global questions, delving into topics that matter to you with the experts. From diplomats to humanitarians to students, I'm your host, Jen Marcocci. This is part one of our second episode on refugees and asylum seekers. Today, I'm joined with Erica Feller. A man who had been in detention for 10 plus years because he didn't have have a passport. We will be exploring her experience as the former Assistant High Commissioner for Protections at the UNHCR, as well as her work on refugee policy and displacement globally. Joining me today is Erica Feller. From 2005 to 2013, she held the post of the Assistant High Commissioner for Protections. This was preceded by 14 years of service as an Australian diplomat in Canberra and overseas. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. So what's involved with being the Assistant High Commissioner for Protections? I don't know how much you know about the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. One reads a lot about it in the newspaper, but it's mainly defensive reporting and negative reporting linked to the rather controversial uh, asylum policies of the Australian government in relation to boat arrivals. So UNHCR, the High Commissioner for Refugees, is usually painted in, in rather negative advocacy terms, but it does a lot more than that. So to explain my role, I have to explain to you what the UNHCR is. It is the principal organization within the UN system that has the mandate to assist and protect refugees. Refugees are clearly defined in international law, but the people that UNHCR works for are a wider group, if you like, than the very classical definition of a refugee as a victim of persecution. Um, UNHCR helps a lot of people who are displaced because of war, because of conflict, and because of a complex set of circumstances which make life impossible to continue to live where they are. They're usually displaced outside their country as refugees, but increasingly a number of people are displaced inside their countries, and they're called internally displaced people. So UNHCR helps both these groups of people in different ways. It has a High Commissioner who is appointed by the General Assembly of Nations in New York, and it's currently a man called Filippo Grandi, uh, who is an Italian, formerly the head of UNRWA, the organization that looked after Palestinian refugees. Then it has three management positions directly reporting to the High Commissioner, but in fact appointed by the Secretary-General because they're regarded as political positions outside the bureaucracy, if you like, Mm -hmm. of a big organisation. Those three positions are the Deputy High Commissioner, which is usually a position reserved for the Americans for a whole range of reasons, including the fact that they're the biggest donor to UNHCR. And then it has two assistant High Commissioner positions. One is responsible for overseeing all the operations of the organization, and the organization works all around the world in many, many countries, has over 17,000 staff in different parts of the world. The other one is the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection, and that's where I came in. Sorry, this is a long-winded way of describing what I do. It's very necessary. But um, the mandate of the organization is defined as protection. It does a lot 
of things under that general rubric. But the core of what the organisation does is protection. And the Assistant High Commissioner Protection, which was a, a position which was created actually not so long ago, I think in about 2005, um, and it has the overall responsibility for overseeing the protection activities of UNHCR. What is protection? It's not guns and it's not police force and it's not things like that. It is a fourfold task. First part of it is about advocacy, advocating for the rights of refugees. Second part of it is about training and improving the understanding of all those people who have to interact with refugees, border officials and immigration officials and governments and whatever. Third part of it is standard setting. That is developing new rules that states are supposed to abide by, whether they do or whether they don't, it's another matter, but they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. And the fourth part of it is hands-on protection. That's being out there in the field, going into prisons, going into detention centres, talking governments into a, a better a better way of dealing with the refugees on their territory. Um, it's a it's a sort of direct contact with refugees and their needs, helping women, for example, who have been sexually abused in flight, helping children who are um, in danger of being recruited into foreign services from camps, etc. So it's a very interesting function and protection covers all of that and the High Commissioner, the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection oversees all of that. That's yeah. what it does. In that role, what was the most challenging thing, do you think? And when you first went into it, what did you expect versus reality? Good questions, because half the role, if you like, and here I'm desperately simplifying, but half the role is interacting with governments and other very high-level interlocutors. That's going to meet prime ministers and presidents, some of whom are wonderful people. For example, I met Nelson Mandela and talked with him. I met Aung San Suu Kyi when she was still under house arrest. I've met also some more dubious types like Hun Sen, for example, of, uh, of Cambodia. So you do a lot of very high-level interaction, and that is challenging in itself because you come as the United Nations, you don't come as another government, you are essentially a servant of governments, so you have to walk a, a fine line. UNHCR's role is obligatory, it's not discretionary under its mandate, it means it has to go in and deal with situations, so it can't wait to be invited by government. So one of the big challenges is getting to meet these people, getting them to take you seriously, and then actually ensuring that they do something about what they have said they will do. So that's one side of it, is actually trying to make things better at a very high level, trying to find the communication with these people. The other challenge is actually out in the field. And I've visited a lot of these refugee situations, urban situations, camp situations, um, and you meet people in very desperate circumstances. You meet them in very remote places. You meet them with problems that you know you can do very little actually about 
except to help them stay alive and hopefully to find a balance in their life sufficient that they can move on to something else. So it is, it can be a very wearing experience to meet these people. It can be a very frustrating experience because you feel you should be able to do more than you can actually do. But it also can be a very uplifting experience. And I've said this to many people that working for you in ECR was actually a great privilege. If you think how many people can say that about the jobs they've had, that it was a privilege to have been able to be engaged in that sort of work. So, you know, you, you meet people whose circumstances are incredibly difficult, but who nevertheless are very dignified people, who are able to have a positive approach to where their life is going to go, and are able to nevertheless look after their families and their own circumstances. Um, so that teaches you a lot about humanity. But yeah, so these are the sort of two main sets of challenges, mm. the people you interact with. And then, of course, there are a whole lot of other very nitty-gritty things, and we can talk about statelessness later. <laughs> I want to begin with a number. 68.5 million people are internally and externally displaced, according to the UNHCR, as of the end of 2018. And at least 10 million of that figure are stateless. What does statelessness mean? Statelessness means that if you are a stateless person, there is no country that accepts you as its citizen. That is a deceptively simple sentence. It means a lot of terrible things for people. I mean, if you don't have a country that you call the country of your nationality, then you have no entitlements to the basic things that we just take for granted. You can't get a birth certificate. You probably can't get a death certificate when you die. You can't travel. You can't get a passport, so you can't move around, can't leave the country. Quite often you can't rent uh, accommodation because uh, you can't prove who you are and that you have a right to be there. It's quite hard to get jobs, if at all, um, because people say, who are you? You can't get your children into school because school can depend very much on nationality and being entitled to be where you are. So there are a lot of huge limitations just in daily day-to-day -day life. But it also means you can't exercise the rights of citizenship. You can't vote, for example. Um, you have no voice in the society in which you live in a way that could help change it. Um, you have no civil or political rights of any sort. Mm. So a stateless person can be in an incredibly difficult predicament. The person may not be a refugee, person may be living inside the country where they were born, but they can be a refugee. I mean, quite often statelessness, it has a number of causes, statelessness. It's a, a legal issue in, in, in many respects. People are born in countries under circumstances where citizenship is not conferred on them. For example, there are 27 plus countries who don't recognize the right of women to pass their nationality on to their children. It only passes through the man. So 
if the woman is a single mother or if she's been abandoned by the man or if she's in a flight situation, um, you know, she's sought asylum somewhere, she has no ability to pass her citizenship on to her child, so her child has no citizenship. But there are many other reasons people are stateless. They're stateless because nationality is taken away from them, forcibly, under laws as they change. Um, Ethiopia, Eritrea was a good example. When that war between those countries broke out, people from one ethnicity in the other country immediately lost the citizenship of the country they were in. Nationality can become complicated if states break up. In the case of Sudan, for example, I traveled to Sudan in 2011 when um, South Sudan was gaining independence from the Sudanese, uh, uh, Sudanese state. And there, was a, there were a lot of issues about who would be entitled to the citizenship of South Sudan when it came into existence. So there are those sorts of problems. There's a lot of historical legacy problems here as well. When the Soviet Union break up, broke up, there were many, many hundreds of thousands of ethnic Russians who had been either forcibly placed in some of the countries that made up the Soviet Union or who had gone to live there, for example, the Baltic countries, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. And when these countries gained independence, they didn't want to have anything to do with their Soviet past, and that included not giving citizenship as, as uh, members of the new country to the ethnic Russians who were still living there. They may have been born there, and but they were always ethnic Russians. And then there are large numbers of people within the former Soviet realm, for example, in, in Central Asia, uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, who have ethnicity of countries that they're not living in. Um, because when it was the Soviet Union, it was one big country. And now they're without effective citizenship. There are groups, people like the Roma, the, uh, who, who travel around Europe. There are nomadic peoples. Um, anyway, it's a very complicated and difficult issue, and it can put people in terrible circumstances. The first time I came across it, I was in Malaysia. And I came across um, a man who had been in detention for 10 plus years because he didn't have a country, he didn't have a passport. He had been on a boat, he'd been a sailor on a boat, and he had too much to drink and the boat had left without him. And he was left there and he was detained. And he said he was from India, but he couldn't prove it and the Indian government refused to except that he was Indian and he wasn't Malaysian and he had no other. There he was. He was stuck in detention and he slowly, he slowly uh, developed very, very serious uh, mental problems, uh, mental health problems. And eventually we had to get a one-way document from India for him, which they finally agreed to do, and have him travel back accompanied by a doctor to the place he said he came from, but he had no family there, anything. I don't know what eventually happened to him, but at least he got out of detention. Um, so these are these sorts of circumstances you come across. The Young Diplomat Society is more than just a podcast. Check out our website to explore the worldly news that we cover. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe to get your weekly insight from our reporters in the world this week. When states become independent or they change the way they govern themselves and they don't give the opportunity to those that are inside 
to conform to that government. They just say, now you're stateless. So as you were talking about Russia and South Sudan, is that something that is a main factor in driving statelessness? Well, it is a factor, yes. There aren't so many new states. The last new state, I think, is actually South Sudan. Mm. But many states change their nationality laws regularly. A good example of that is Myanmar, Burma. And, of course, you'll be very well aware in this part of the world of the Rohingya problem, Mm -hmm. uh, where you have over 900,000 people who are of Rohingya ethnicity, if you like, who have left, who have fled Myanmar and are in in very difficult circumstances, either in camps or outside camps in in Bangladesh around a place called Cox's Bazaar. And their statelessness, the Myanmar government says they're not citizens of Myanmar. They fled because of ethnic strife and violence, but also because of a series of discriminatory behaviours towards them. They were often forcibly relocated. There was forcible taxation. But most important, because they are stateless, they're not able to move around. They're not able to improve their circumstances, leave where the villages where they're born and try and improve their life because they have no documents which are recognised inside that country as uh, conferring on them the right to freedom of movement as citizens of Myanmar. So even when the violence broke out uh, in, in Rakhine State, they didn't have the capacity to move inside the country to escape it, so they left, they fled in very large numbers, and they won't come back because they don't believe their security is guaranteed. Now, the, their statelessness, according to the Myanmar government, is because they are seen as originally of Bangladeshi origin, but the original, originally of Bangladeshi origin means many, many generations back, because most of these people have been born, grown up, had children, and, 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 and led their entire lives in Myanmar. But that's not sufficient under the Myanmar laws, which have changed over the years. And there's been layer and layer of new citizenship law, which has imposed layer and layer of citizenship requirements, which these people decreasingly are able to meet. It's a problem that the Myanmar government wants to get rid of. It wants to see these people leave. It's not terribly interested in having them back, even though it says it is interested and has said it will receive them back. But if the government had a way, the problem would be transported to Bangladesh and there these people would stay. The Bangladeshis say these are people who were born in Myanmar. They've had no link at all to Bangladesh. Uh, They may be Bengali in in, in how they look, but they're not Bengali from an ethnic point of view and, and they should stay where they were born and where they have a right to live. So it has been a long-standing and complicated problem for a long time in this part of the world. And it's an example of where statelessness can interact with refugeehood and where the two can come together. And that's why I'm talking about all of this, by the way, because UNHCR is the refugee agency, but it's also the agency which has been designated by the United States nation system as having responsibility for stateless people, whether they're refugees 
or whether they're not. And then finally on statelessness, of course, the most glaring example of a stateless population is the Palestinians. But that's outside UNHCR's remit, uh, at least in the region where you find most of them in Jordan and, and Lebanon, etc. So, But that's a very big and complicated stateless problem as well. So why is it outside of their realm? Outside of UNHCR's remit? Yeah. Because... Because there's another UN, UN organization which mm. is set up specifically for stateless Palestinians. But stateless Palestinians of a certain definition, people who who left what was the state of Palestine at a certain period, fall within the responsibilities of an organization called UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Work Organization, Reliefs and Work Organization. Uh, it is Palestinians who are outside the area covered by UNRWA, and it's very specific, do fall within UNHCR's responsibilities. But Palestinians inside the area of UNRWA don't, because there's a specific provision in the Refugee Convention, the 1951 Refugee Convention, which says that UNHCR's responsibilities are circumscribed in this regard. They don't apply if another organization has immediate responsibility. Again, for those who are interested from a legal point of view, it's a very fascinating um, maze of rules and regulations. Yeah. But uh, it's not so important for the purposes of what we're talking about. Yeah. I actually watched your debate that you had about the relevance of the Refugee Convention. The debate in Sydney? Yeah, it was on SBS. (laughs) I watched that and... Obviously, you lived using that convention. Do you believe it's withstood modern times? Do you think it's able to actually be adapted to what we see today versus what you saw when you first started your Well, I could journey? give you the short or the long answer. Maybe I should try a middle one. Yeah. <laughs> the short answer is I think it is still tremendously important, that convention, it's still valid. It would be very difficult for anybody to argue, to convince me that the basic provisions of the convention are irrelevant in today's world. The right not to be, you know, the right to life, for example, which that convention protects, that's a basic right uh, which hasn't changed since that convention was drafted. The right not to be discriminated against on the basis of ethnicity, the right to uh, have access to basic uh, life-sustaining support uh, when you are outside a support structure provided by your own government. I mean, you can't argue against this. And it deals with a certain category of people, people who are persecuted and have a well-founded fear of being persecuted because of their ethnicity, because of their religion, because of their um, because of a particular group they may belong to in a society, for example. All of that happens. I've seen it happen. I've met these people who have been the victims of that kind of persecution, and I've met people who have told me that without the protection of that convention, they wouldn't be alive. So. I'm a strong believer in it. Okay, that said, the problems of the world today are becoming increasingly complex when it comes to displacement. And there are a lot of causes that force people to leave which interact one with another 
And it's not always so easy to listen to someone's story and define precisely why they left their country and was it of persecution, was it not. The convention definition has been expanded anyway in Africa and in Latin America to incorporate not just victims of persecution, but victims of violence. That is, people who are fleeing generalized war, um, generalized civil disturbance in their own country. And that has been broadly accepted today, this so-called extended definition of refugee, as being a more complete definition than the 1951 convention contains. And so most states will work with that definition of refugee. But then you get this other issue. You get people who are leaving because of a accumulation of circumstances that make life intolerable. And that accumulation of circumstances might be they can't find jobs, maybe they're discriminated against in the job market. If you look at the Hazaras in Afghanistan, for example, they will say not only are they subject to physical abuse, but they're subject to a lot of discrimination because of their Hazara uh, ethnicity, and that means they can't get jobs here. They can't uh, find places to live. You know that they can't integrate into their societies. So, is that persecution? It is, according to many people's definition. According to a lot of governments, however, they say, "Well, just a minute." People are moving to better their situation in life. They're moving to get a job. They're moving to access education for their children. Does that make them a refugee to to whom we owe protection responsibilities? Their answer will be, no, it doesn't. These are migrants and they should be seeking a migrant solution rather than a refugee solution. UNHCR will argue that cumulative discrimination will reach a certain point that it becomes persecution, even if it doesn't become persecution within the classical definition of persecution, if you get what I'm saying. It becomes a a legal concern. So one area which has been particularly complicated has been discrimination against women. And there are a number of societies who severely restrict what women can do where they can go, how they can live, and tolerate to an unnecessary extent uh, mistreatment of women. There's never a necessary extent for mistreatment, but tolerate mistreatment, um, which can amount to extreme serious uh, violence against women. So many countries for years argued, and this is something I worked quite hard on when I was in UNHCR, trying to get gender discrimination recognized as a legitimate ground for recognizing refugee status. And it wasn't easy because many said, no, this is gender, this is private, this is outside the refugee definition. It's not mentioned in the 1951 convention. So don't come to us with claims from women who are escaping abusive husbands or women who are escaping... um, you know, circumstances of severe discrimination. That, I think, has evolved. It hasn't gone as far as we would like to see it go, but it's evolved quite considerably now. And and 
issues related to gender are now very much are increasingly accepted as issues to be dealt with within the framework of refugee protection programs. Uh, homosexuality, for example, um, for a long while was not something that was deemed to be a uh, an understood basis as to why people might fear for their safety and therefore were leaving. So, you know, it was not accepted within the refugee definition. It, well, accepted always by us in UNHCR, but not accepted by many states who are applying the definition. So that's all changed, I think, uh, or is well on the road to changing. This is a long way. I, I said I was going to do the middle ground, and here I am talking the long ground <laughs> to, your, <laughs> to your question. But I think the convention needs to be built upon. I think there are areas that the convention is not adequate in. One of them is that the convention does not require any particular country to give long-term asylum or residence to any particular individual, even if that individual is recognized as a refugee. So this question of the solution to the problem is not sufficiently built into the convention. The immediate protection is you can't return somebody to a situation where they're going to be persecuted. That's the immediate protection. What happens after that? You can't return them. Are you obliged to keep them? And this question of long-term solutions, I don't think, is properly covered. Then there is the very legitimate concern that many states have. I mean, 80% plus of refugees are found in countries in the developing world, mainly countries neighboring refugee-producing countries, who have serious problems of their own, security issues, developmental issues, social issues, and they're being asked to house hundreds of thousands of people in always very fragile environments with limited resources. There's a question of burden sharing here responsibility sharing, if you like, or burden sharing, or both, because both are apt terms. And the convention is not good on burden sharing. And there's been a, a movement recently which has generated a whole process and a new document called the Global Compact on Refugees and the Global Compact on Migration, which is about improving the arrangements between states, improving their cooperation, their collaboration, so that the burdens don't fall unfairly on one small number and others escape their responsibilities. So that's another area I think that the convention can be built upon, maybe not by a new international instrument. But my last point on this, which I hope I made strongly in Sydney, was you don't want to touch the convention, even if it's not the best instrument in the world, even if it's not the most comprehensive instrument in the world, leave it alone. Because if you open it up for renegotiation, you will never get anything nearly as good as you currently have. And that will be to the serious detriment of protection of people. That's very insightful. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website or the link in the description. This is Global Questions and thanks for listening.